Would you turn to your Bible tonight to the book of Luke, chapter 10? And we begin reading with verse 13. Luke 10, verses 13 through 20. Luke chapter 10. May we bow together in prayer before we read, please. Our Father, we thank Thee that God has spoken to our hearts tonight through the songs, the choir, the solo, and the the great congregational singing. And we pray tonight that the Spirit of Jesus will make all of this real to us and will move upon our hearts the impressions to serve You and love You more. Give us a burning heart to see the lost one to Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 10, beginning with verse 13. Woe unto thee, Chorazin, woe unto thee, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works had been done in Tyre and Sidon, which have been done in you, they had a great while ago repented, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the the judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted to heaven, shalt be thrust down to hell. He that heareth you heareth me. And he that despiseth you despiseth me, and he that despiseth me despiseth him that sent me. And the seventy returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject unto us through thy name. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Notwithstanding, in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. In the first part of this chapter, beginning with verse 1, you'll remember that the Lord appointed other seventy also and sent them out two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself would go. Therefore said he unto them, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest, Go your ways. Behold, I send you forth as lambs among the wolves. And the seventy came back, rejoicing. The demons were subject unto them. They had a lot of victories, and there was a lot of joy in their Christian experience. They enjoyed serving God. They enjoyed telling others about Jesus. And they especially enjoyed the spiritual authority that was theirs. And there is a joy in the Christian life. I don't know of anything more joyful than going out with weeping, bearing precious seed, and then coming again with rejoicing, bringing our sheaves with us. I don't know of anything on the earth that satisfies the spiritual uh, thirst and, and heart cry in a believer than to see some dear, precious person for whom we've prayed come to trust Jesus as Savior. 
And yet the Lord said, the thing to really rejoice about, the thing to get all excited about, and may it never lose its keen cutting edge in our life, is not so much that the demons are subject unto us, and not so much that we've seen all these victories, because victories come and victories go, and we have ups and downs and so on. But, he said, rejoice that your name is written in heaven. When the trumpet of the Lord shall sound, and time shall be no more, and the morning breaks eternal bright and fair, and the saved of earth shall gather over on the other shore, and the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. Let us labor for the Master from the dawn till setting sun. Let us talk of all his wondrous love and grace. Then when all of life is over, and our work on earth is done, and the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. And my friend, the greatest joy of life is to look forward to that wonderful homecoming. When we hear the roll call, and we say, here am I, Lord, here am I. I don't know how God is going to do it. I don't know whether the songwriter that wrote that great hymn, When the Roll is Called Up Yonder, was inspired. I think he was. It's been a hymn that's been with us through the years. But as to whether he had a glimpse into heaven as to some type of roll call that will be called over in glory, I don't know. But I know he has set a word picture that conjures up in the thinking and mind of Bible-believing Christians all over the world of that great roll call day when we say, I'm home, Lord, I'm home. And beloved, there's nothing wrong with looking forward to getting home. When you and I were young and we first left home and we were gone and Christmas time came and we wrote a letter or we got on the telephone and said, Mom, Dad, I'm coming home. Don't you know that was a joy? In your heart, in the heart of home, in the heart of mom and dad, there was a joy there. And then when you got home and you'd been gone a long time and there was a thrill and excitement, I'm going home, I'm going home. Well, that's the way it is when we face heaven. We're on our way home. And when the roll is called over there, I'm going to be there. And many of you are going to be there. But there are going to be some things when we get home by which our fidelity to Jesus Christ on this earth will have been measured. Fidelity is a term that is very familiar to most people, to even to teenagers today. We, talk, we used to talk about hi-fis, now it's stereos. But hi-fi meant highly fidel or faithful to the original tone or sound. For example, when a record is a hi-fi, uh, used to be, I don't think they call it that anymore, but when they used to call it hi-fi, what it really meant was that that record was highly faithful to the original sound. For example, if there was a great band or if there was a great orchestra and they had a hi-fi record made of that, that means that the recording was highly faithful to the original sound. Now we have stereos and you can hardly tell the difference between the original and the copy. Now God wants our lives to be like that. He wants us to live highly faithful lives to the copy that goes before us. And the copy is not some man. The copy is not a Sunday school teacher or a pastor 
or a Sunday or a uh, deacon or a mother or daddy, even though those people are examples before us. And, and we often are strongly influenced by a teacher, by a worker, by a faithful Christian. But the original copy by which all of us are going to be measured is none of these but the Lord Jesus himself. When we talk to a lost soul about being saved, one of the key verses we help them understand is Romans 3.23. Brother Tommy, will you help those two guys in the back there? We need to be careful and be quiet. Thank you very much. Yeah, that's right. Thank you. I appreciate that very much. That's wonderful. One of the key verses we give to, to uh, people in helping them come to know their need of Jesus is Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The glory of God is Jesus. God will not share his glory with anybody else. The glory of God is not you. It is not the church. It is not an individual Christian. It is no strong, exemplary Christian. The glory of God is Jesus. In the Old Testament, the Shekinah glory of God filled the temple. It was the manifestation of God. And the glory of God is still the Lord Jesus Christ. And the only way a man can sense his need of being saved is to compare himself with the glory of God, Jesus. And it is not until we see Jesus and we recognize all of his power and all of his authority and all of his purity and all of his holiness that we begin to realize how sin-filled and earth-bound we really are. And so it is Jesus who is the summum bonum of our life. It is Jesus by whom we will be measured. It is Jesus and his fidelity to God and his faithfulness to God that needs to be our supreme example. Now there are several illustrations of this in the scripture and I want to lay on our hearts tonight the roll call as we get home and what we will be measured by, some of the, some of the various uh, areas we will be measured by and I think the first one is in Isaiah chapter 6. Would you open your Bible to Isaiah chapter 6? Isaiah the 6th chapter. It was the year that King Uzziah died, and uh, I saw also the Lord, Isaiah said, sitting on a t throne and high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphim, each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. We need a vision of the glory of God. And when we have that vision of the glory of God, and we see all of his purity and all of his beauty, there's going to be a response in our heart that will say, let the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. Amen. Isaiah cried out, God is holy. God is righteous. God is pure. Woe is me. I'm undone. And I believe, many Bible students believe, and I'm sure they're, they're right, that this was Isaiah's conversion. This was his salvation experience when he saw the Lord and he realized how much he needed God. And he cried out, woe is me, I'm undone. I need God. I need something I don't have. 
And after he received Christ, Isaiah was never the same again. And if there is somebody in the Old Testament that wrote more about Jesus than any other somebody, it was Isaiah. Because he was so thoroughly imbued with the glory of God. And I can just picture when old Isaiah went home to be with God and his cloak and his, and his mantle was around him and he came home at the roll call. I think there was a glow about his face. And when the Lord called the name Isaiah, there was a glow on his face and in his heart as he said, here am I, here am I. And the Lord said, oh, Isaiah, I heard those words long ago from your very lips. For you remember when Isaiah had seen that vision of the glory of God, it wasn't long until Isaiah himself heard the voice say, who will I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah said, here am I, Lord, here am I, here am I. And beloved, I believe when we get home at the roll call, one of the measurements of our fidelity to the to the truth and to the, to the pattern of Jesus Christ is our willingness to have said in the earth, here am I, here am I, use me, break me, take me, make me, mold me, use me, use me, Lord. And I want to encourage us every morning when we get up, get up by the side of our bed and say, Lord, use me today. Lord, use me today. Here am I, Lord, can you use me? Now, we're not going to do that unless we realize the glory of God. We're not going to do that unless we can see a vision of the greatness, the glory, and hear that voice inside our hearts sometimes as a very still, small voice crying out, who will I send? Who will go for us? And I say, here am I, Lord, send me, send me. I believe God is calling up some from this very congregation to be used by God. Last summer, he called some of you to go to Mexico, some of you to go to Texas, some of you to go to the mountains. And you didn't just go for an excursion. You didn't just go and ride those 30 hours on an old bus just for your health. You did it because you heard a voice and you saw a vision and you paid your own money and you went down there to try to be faithful to the call of God and the tug of God at your heart. Lord, here am I, send me. And that same voice rings out this fall in 1981 in Bowling Green, Kentucky. I have some people, I have some folks, other sheep have I who are not of this fold. Who will I send? Who will go for us? Is there somebody who will say, here am I, Lord, send me, send me. I have somebody over in Indonesia that needs to hear about God. I have someone over in Angola. I have somebody over in Israel. I have someone over in the South Sea Islands. I have someone over in the mountains. Is there somebody who will say, Lord, I hear your voice. I see the vision. I've seen the glory of God. Here am I, Lord. Here am I. Use me. Flora Dodson was a glorious Christian. Flora Dodson spent 40 years in China. She came home on a furlough to, to Louisville. Her mother was in a nursing home. She went out to see her mother. Some of her folks, some of the family, and some of her friends had said, Flora, your mother's getting old, and she may not be here very long. She may not even be here when you get back 
again. And, and Flora, your mother's growing, growing, going blind. Flora, why don't you stay home and take care of her? And Flora's heart was greatly pulled. God had called her to China. But she loved her mother. What would you do? She went to the nursing home where her mother lived. And she said, Mother, I love you very much. And Mother, I know you're getting blind and you're getting old and you may not be here when I get back from China this time. Mother, would you like for me to stay home and take care of you? Get a house out here and I'll take you home. You won't have to be in a nursing home anymore. I'll take you home with me. And Flora Dodson's mother said, Flora, what has God called you to do? Oh, Flora said, God called me to China. And Flora's sainted mother said, Flora, go back to China. God will take care of me. She went back and the word came. Her mother was taken to heaven while she was gone. Sometime later, Flora was on her way home and in Rome broke her hip. Had all kinds of difficulty. After she came home, she sat on this bench right over here and said to our young people, if I had to do it again, if I had a thousand lives to give, I'd give them every one to Jesus. A few years ago, she went to be with Jesus. I think Miss Lohman went over to her memorial service in Miss Glazier. And I thought, what a wonderful reunion there was there in the glory when Flora saw for the first time in a long time her mother. And she was able to stand by her mother before Jesus and say, Jesus, I heard your voice and I saw the vision and I did what you said to do. At the roll call, that's the thing that's going to count. Oh, my beloved, be thou faithful unto death and I will give thee the crown of life. There's something else in the scripture I want to call our attention to. Turn in your Bible to Malachi. The book of Malachi, chapter 3, verse 16. One of the famous 316s of the Bible. They that feared the Lord spoke often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before them, for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. A book of remembrance. At the roll call, there's going to be a book of remembrance. And I think in that book of remembrance, there are going to be some remembrances from what went on here in the earth. I think, and I believe there's scripture to support this, but I want you to understand that I'm giving you what may be my own opinion. But I believe there's scripture to support this and substantiate it. At that book of remembrance when we get home before the Lord, who will be in that book of remembrance? I'm not sure this is the same as the book of life. I, I don't think so. I think it's a different book. 
the book of remembrance for those that feared the Lord and spoke about his name. I believe that that book of remembrance is kept on those who have been faithful in certain areas of our lives. Among those areas has to do with our time. What have we done with our time? We only have 60 seconds in a minute and 60 minutes in an hour and 24 hours in a day. And we only have seven days in a week. And we only have 52 day, weeks in a year. And most of us will only have 70 to 80 years. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And what we've done with our time is going to figure in concerning that book of remembrance. Have we wild the time away? Have we twiddled our thumbs while this world is on fire with passion, pride, hatred, and greed? What have we done with our time? We all have the same time. God grant that we'll be aware and be good stewards of the time that God has given us. Secondly, I believe that book of remembrance is related to our tithe. It's in the very same chapter as the, as the scriptural injunction concerning the tithe. Will a man rob God, yet ye have robbed me, even this whole nation? Wherein have we robbed thee? Even in tithes and offerings. And I believe, beloved, that that book of remembrance is written concerning those who have been faithful to God in our tithes before Him. I try to think of why people do not tithe their income. I think sometimes it's because they've not been taught to tithe. God forbid that we should sin against the Lord here at Glendale by not teaching people to tithe. Because we're going to have to give an answer for what we've done with our money. I think another reason people do not tithe is because we get so caught up in the things of this earth and they become so very, very important to us in a workaday world, in a world that we must keep up with the Joneses and keep up with somebody else. And we have to have the things. But we need to remember that a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. Better to live in a smaller house than not to tithe. Better to live a, drive an older car than to not to tithe. Better to wear old worn out clothes than not to tithe. Better to eat less than not to tithe. Because God has commanded us to tithe our income. And sometimes when we get all caught up in things, we forget Matthew 6, that says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. I think another reason people do not tithe faith failure. My dear friend, it takes faith to tithe your income. There is no way in times like these that you can possibly afford to tithe. The problem is you can't afford not to tithe. But you list all of your uh, obligations and all your responsibilities. Now you may think this is just you personally. You've tried it and boy, I just tell you I can't do it because I've tried and tried and tried and it just won't come out right. There is no way it'll ever come out right unless you put the tithe at the top. 
That's where it belongs. That's God. And it depends on how much we love him. If we love him, we'll put him at the top of our list in everything and give him that prior priority on our list. Now I acknowledge, I'm the first to acknowledge that God doesn't only want your tithe, he wants your all. But a symbol of our all is our tithe. That's a symbol of it. Just like when a man and woman get married, the symbol of their love is their ring. You could get married without a ring. But what kind of husband that's really the kind of husband he ought to be wants to go around or will go around without that ring on? When you see a husband that doesn't have his ring on, you know that either his finger's swollen or something wrong. So you see, when a person neglects that symbol of his faith, which is his tithe, you know that his life is swelled with something that's wrong with things or else something else is wrong. And I say that with all the love in my life and heart to you. And then there are other reasons people don't tithe. They spend their tithe, they're misinformed about spending their tithe on something else. They decide, well, I, best, I tell you, I've got to send my children to college. And I've got to support the Red Cross and the Cancer Society and all these other things. And they're all good. I have a stack of things this high of requests for contributions. And they're all good. I don't. Don't criticize him. I got a letter from Billy Graham and he wants more money. Got a letter from James Robinson and he wants more money. I get them all the time. And I thank God. I pray, Lord, please bless Billy Graham. Please bless James Robinson. Please bless Jerry Falwell. God bless all these wonderful causes. But I've given my gifts to the Lord's church. That's where it belongs for me. And I'm not against any of those others. I love them. And I would support them if I could get some extra money in my hands. I'd support them. I believe in them. But I tell you, my tithe belongs to God. All of it. Every bit of it. Bring ye the whole tithe into the storehouse and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. And a book of remembrance was written for those who were found faithful in those areas. And then another area is our talents placed on the altar of service for Jesus. A book of remembrance was written, I believe, for those who give their talents to God. How wonderful to see somebody who can take a violin and make it make beautiful music and instead of making it like a fiddle in the Grand Ole Opry, they make it bring forth something that honors Jesus. I like that. Or they can take a horn and blow it, and instead of going out to a dance hall, they come to the Lord's house and blow it for the Lord. I like that. Or they've got a wonderful voice, and instead of just keeping it selfishly hidden, tucked away, and say, well, I'll tell you, I don't like the way the choir sings, I don't like this, I don't like that, I just tell you I'm going to hoard it to myself. Beloved, you're running the risk of getting your name out of that book of remembrance. I'm not talking about being saved. That has nothing to do with whether you get to heaven or not. The book of remembrance is a different book. It's not the book of life. It's not the book of salvation. It's a book of remembrance for those who were faithful in these areas. I believe God will bless you as we put our talents on the line for God. All we have 
teaching, working, and serving in his kingdom, in his work. And then, I believe there's another thing we're going to be measured by when we get home to glory, and that has to do with our service. Jesus said, the harvest truly is plenteous, the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. And the very next breath, his disciples answer that prayer. And it's as if they said, Lord, here am I, send me, send me. I read something that I want to share with you. And it's rather lengthy, but I want to share it with you. I feel impressed too tonight. And I hope it'll be a blessing to our hearts and a spiritual lesson to us. Listen, I dreamed I drove on a Florida road, still and straight and empty. On either side were groves of orange trees, so that as I turned to look at them from time to time, line after line of trees stretched back endlessly from the road, their boughs heavy with round yellow fruit. This was harvest time. My wonder grew as the miles slipped by how great the harvest to be gathered. Suddenly I realized that for all the hours I had driven, I had seen no other person. The groves were empty of people. No other car had passed me. No houses were to be seen beside the highway. I was alone in a forest of orange trees. But at last I saw some orange pickers. Far from the highway, almost on the horizon, lost in the vast wilderness of unpicked fruit, I could discern a tiny group of them working steadily. And many miles later I saw another group. I could not be sure, but I suspected that the earth beneath me was shaking with silent laughter at the hopelessness of their task. Yet the pickers went on picking. The sun had long passed its zenith, and the shadows were lengthening when without any warning I turned a corner of the road to see a notice leaving neglected country, entering home country. The contrast was so striking and startling that I scarcely had time to take it in. I had to slow down. All at once the traffic was heavy. People by the thousands swarmed the road and crowded the sidewalks. Even more startling was the transformation in the orange groves. Orange groves were still there, orange trees in abundance, but now far from being silent and empty, they were filled with the laughter and singing of multitudes of people. Indeed, it was the people we noticed rather than the trees, people and houses. I parked the car at the roadside and mingled with the crowd. Smart gowns, neat shoes, showy hats, expensive suits, and starched shirts made me a little conscious of my work clothes. Everyone seemed so fresh and poised and gay. Is it a holiday, I asked a well-dressed woman with whom I fell in step? Why, she looked a little startled for a moment, and then her face relaxed with a smile of gracious condescension. You're a stranger, aren't you? She said. And before I could reply, this is Orange Day. She must have been puzzled at the look on my face, for she went on. It's so good to turn aside from one's labors and pick oranges one day of the week. But don't you pick oranges every day, I asked her. One may pick oranges at any time, she said. We should always be ready to pick oranges, but Orange Day is the day that we devote especially to orange picking. I left her and made my way further into the trees. Most of the people were carrying a book, bound beautifully in leather and edged and lettered in gold. I was able to discern on the edge of one of them the words, Orange Picker's Manual. By and by, I noticed around one of the orange tree seats had been arranged, rising upward in tears from the ground. The seats were almost filled. But as I approached the group, a smiling, well-dressed gentleman shook my hand and conducted me to a seat. 
There, around the foot of the orange tree, I could see a number of people. One of them was addressing all the people on the seats. And just as I got to my seat, everyone rose to his feet and began to sing. The man next to me shared with me a songbook. It was called Songs of the Orange Groves. They sang for some time, and the song leader waved his arms with a strange and frenzied abandon, exhorting the people in the intervals between the songs to sing more loudly. I grew steadily more puzzled. When do you start picking oranges? I asked the man who loaned me his book. Well, it's not long now, he told me. We like to get everyone warmed up first. Besides, we want to make the oranges feel at home. I thought he was joking, but his face was serious. After a while, a rather fat man took over the song leading. And after reading two sentences from the well-thumbed copy of the Orange Picker's Manual, began to make a speech. I wasn't clear whether he was addressing the people or the oranges. I glanced behind me, and I saw a number of groups of people similar to our own group gathering around an occasional tree and being addressed by another fat man. Some of the trees had no one around them at all. Which trees do we pick from? I asked the man beside me. He did not seem to understand, so I pointed to the trees round about. This is our tree, he said, pointing to the one we were gathering around. But there are too many of us to pick from just one tree, I protested. Why, there are many people, than, more people than oranges. Oh, but we don't pick oranges, the man explained. Explained. We haven't been called. That's the pastor orange picker's job. We're here to support him. Besides, we haven't been to college. You need to know how to orange thinks before you can pick it successfully. Orange psychology, you know. Most of these folks here, he went on, pointing to the congregation, have never been to manual school. Manual school, I whispered, what's that? Why, it's where they go to study the orange picker's manual. My informant went on, it's very hard to understand. You need years of study before it makes sense. Oh, I see, I murmured. I had no idea that picking oranges was so difficult. The fat man at the front was still making his speech. His face was red, and he appeared to be indignant about something. So far as I could see, there was rivalry with some of the other orange-picking groups. But a moment later, a glow came on his face. But we are not forsaken, he said. We have much to be thankful for. Last week, we saw three oranges brought into our baskets. And we are now completely debt-free from the money we owe on the new cushion covers that grace the seats you now sit on. Isn't it wonderful, the man said to me. I made no reply. I felt that something must be profoundly wrong somewhere. All this seemed to be a very roundabout way of picking oranges. The fat man was reaching a climax in his speech. The atmosphere seemed tense. Then was a very dramatic gesture. He reached two of the oranges, plucked them from the branch, and placed them in the basket at his feet. The applause was deafening. Do we start on the picking now, I asked my informant. What in the world do you think we're doing, he hissed. What do you suppose this tremendous effort has been for? There's more orange-picking talent in this group than in the rest of home county. Thousands of dollars has been spent on the tree you're looking at. I apologized quickly. I wasn't being critical, I said, and I'm sure the fat man must be a very good orange picker, but surely the rest of us could try. After all, there are so many oranges that need picking. We've all got a pair of hands, and we could all read the manual. When you've been in the business as long as I have, you'll realize that it's not that simple, he said. There isn't time for one thing. We have our work to do, our families to care for, and our homes to look after. We, but it was, I wasn't listening. Light was beginning to break on me. Whatever these people were, they were not orange pickers. Orange picking was just a form of entertainment for their weekends. I tried one or two more of the groups behind the trees. Not all of them had the high academic standards for orange pickers. Some held classes on orange picking. I tried to tell them of the trees I'd seen in neglected country, but they seemed to have little interest. 
We haven't picked the oranges here yet, was their reply. The sun was almost setting in my dream, and growing tired of the noise and activity all around me, I got in the car and began to drive back again along the road I'd come. Soon all around me again were the vast and empty orange groves, but there were changes. Something had happened in my absence. Everywhere the ground was littered with fallen fruit, and as I watched, it seemed that before my very eyes, the trees began to rain oranges. Many of them lay rotting on the ground. I felt there was something so strange about it all, and my bewilderment grew as I thought of all the people in home county. Then, booming through the trees, there came a voice which said, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers. And I awakened, for it was only a dream. Do you understand that parable? Did you get it? Beloved, God has called us to go get the fruit that's ripe here in Bowling Green and in Warren County and out in the regions beyond. And we meet together and sing. And we have our nice little fellowship. And we sort of say, well, God didn't call me to go out there and try to win anybody. He called someone else to do it. At the roll call, we're going to be held accountable for what we did concerning Jesus' prayer. The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. I wonder if we have some harvesters here tonight who would stand up on their feet and say, for Jesus' sake, I'll be a harvester. God can count on me. I'll be faithful to him. I want to be a soul winner. I want God to use me to pick that ripened fruit lest it fall to the ground and rot and die and spend eternity separated from God. God help us to have placed on our hearts tonight to be found faithful to him in all of these areas and above everything to say, Jesus, I want to please you. I want to please you. I have one goal in life, just one. Lord, help me to please you. And beloved, when you keep your eyes on the king and you look full in his wonderful face, all the things of earth will grow so strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. God, help us to be faithful until the roll call so that when we hear that roll call, we can say with the Apostle Paul, the time of my departure is at hand. I have kept the faith. I have finished the course. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give to me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them that love his appearing. Found faithful until the roll call. Let's pray. Every head bowed, every eye closed for just a moment. Our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for the injunctions in the Word of God that remind us we are to be found faithful until You call us home. Oh God, help us to see Jesus. 
that one who died that we might not die, that one who lives that we might live, that one who shed his precious blood for our sins. And may we come to him with our heart cry, God, help me to be faithful to you. And if there's one person here tonight who has never been saved, may that one come to Jesus. We pray in his precious name. Amen. Would you stand, please? As we sing God's invitation tonight, the invitation is as the Holy Spirit has put upon your heart a tug to be faithful. Faithful in any area the Holy Spirit spoke to you about. Would you report for duty? Would you say, Lord, use me until the roll call? I know that one day I'll stand before you. I have to give account of my stewardship, the stewardship of my life, my time, my talents, all I am, and I want to be found faithful. The first way to begin being found faithful is to give your heart to Jesus Christ. Be sure you're saved. If you've never been saved, I urge you tonight to come to Christ and trust Him and have your sins washed in the blood. And though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Trust the Lord. And if you're already saved, have you followed Jesus in baptism? Are you faithful in that area of your life? And if you pass those, what are you doing for God in the world? What on earth are you doing for heaven's sake? While we begin to sing, is there someone who will come and say, God has spoken to my heart. I want to be found faithful to him. While we sing, will you come?